Welcome to the Unsophisticated Palate, a podcast about all things wine, beer, and spirits. Join us each week as we drink and delve into different alcohol-related topics. I'm Mark. And I'm John. Cheers. We drink, because you can't cheers without a sip. Absolutely. So, John, uh, first time, and we have somebody on the show. We always like to ask them about their kind of history or relationship with alcohol. So tell us a little bit about that for you. Oh, well, I've been into wine since I was very young. Um, my grandmother had wine with uh, dinner every night. Um, and so when I was with her, which was a lot, she would let me have a, a little sip. And that started when I was around 12 years old. Um, and then as I got older, she'd let me have a little bit more. And then by the time I became a teenager, then I could have a partial glass. As I got into college, then I started drinking uh, wine along with beer and every, everything else. But lots of times when everybody was getting whatever else they wanted, I wanted wine because I kind of had an affinity for it. Then uh, in my early 20s, I started collecting wines. I got introduced to, uh, to Bordeaux and fell in love and started learning everything I could about it. Back in 1991, uh, we had bought some property um, up in Marin County, right on the um, northern border, right at the, at the Sonoma County line. By then, I was a big-time collector and, I don't know, had a couple thousand bottles. And we had to do a landscaping project. We had an acre. And so we had this little hillside that needed something done with it. It was steep. And I said, well, they're growing grapes just down the freeway. Let's plant a vineyard. How hard can that be? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, famous last words. But I fell in love with it. I actually came in uh, one, one weekend after working in, the, in our little vineyard and uh, told my wife, you know what? I know what I want to be when I grow up. And her answer was, God, I'd love for you to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, but it took 15 years, but eventually I started studying. I started learning. I started doing everything. Um, I'm mostly self-taught. In 2005, we found this beautiful piece of property in the southern Santa Clara Valley um, near the town of Gilroy and Morgan Hill. That was already a vineyard that uh, the person I bought it for was actually a grape grower for David Bruce, a very known a well-known winemaker up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And that launched our uh, our official commercial winemaking uh, career at that point. Wow, outstanding. I think there, there's a lot of things in there that kind of hit me a little bit. I mean, one, which is I think I found is a common theme with a lot of winemakers or, or even beer and spirits and that starting young, you know, having those yeah. tastes when you're young and that appreciation. And I think also that and a lack of it being this taboo or, or I don't know, whatever party kind of a thing. It's actually right. something that can be appreciated, right? Exactly. That, that was, I mean, that my grandmother from the beginning, you know, hey, this is to be enjoyed with a meal and all of that. Turned out she drank pretty inexpensive wine, but I didn't realize that until I got older and saw some of the wines that we would taste in the store that they were selling for like $2 and stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. hey, it got me started. <laughs> exactly. And then too that, I mean, you were a you're collecting wines in, in your early 20s and drinking yeah. wine and everyone else is chugging a, a, a cheap beer, right? You're actually yep. enjoying some wines. Yeah. Well, I was fortunate enough that uh, because I liked wine and then I got out of college, got a job, so I had a real paycheck and started thinking, well, gosh, if I'm not drinking, if I don't drink a, a, a jug bottle of wine, I wonder what like a you know, a five or $8 bottle of wine, which was a decent price bottle of wine back in the day. And I was like, wow, this is really good. So then I went up to a few dollars more and, a few, and it just kept getting better. And, uh, I got introduced to uh, Bordeaux and my eyes just like started, whoa, and there you go. Probably the most seminal moment for me though was I met all these other wine collectors and this one gentleman a little older, had a lot more money and 
got some very good wines, gave me a taste of a Chateau Neuf du Pape. I couldn't even say it right. It took me about 20 tries because I was, I was mispronouncing it, but I was just, what is this? And from that point on, came, I mean, I love all wines. I drink everything, um, try everything, but um, the Rhones and especially Chateau Neuf du Pops are my, uh, my favorite wines. Now, I can't pronounce that, and, uh, and it sounds fancy, but I have no idea what it is. So, so uh, what is that? Well, so, so first of all, so Chateau Neuf du Pop means the Pope's new castle. And it's an area in, uh, in, uh, in France, in the, in the Southern Rhone, near the town of Avignon. So in the 1300s, the, um, there was unrest in, uh, in Rome, and the Pope was French. So he moved the Papal Palace to Avignon, where it stayed for 100 years. The second... Pope, Pope John the like 22nd or something like that, bought, built a little palace outside of Avignon in a little village, um, which I couldn't tell you the name anymore, and wanted vineyards planted in it. And so we had all, all, all the peasants plant vineyards for him. And that eventually became Chateau Neuf du Pape, one of the most famous uh, wine regions in, in the Rhone and in the world. And it's, it's almost always a blend, although it can be 100% Grenache. They're phenomenal. Okay, I have not had one, but it sounds like I need to, to get my hands on one. Yeah, well, the, so the wine that, that uh, we toasted with is a wine called Hope. It's my tribute to Chateau Neuf de Pop. So it ha it's a blend, it's a Grenache-based blend, which is what Chateau Neuf de Pops are. has Syrah Mouvedre, which, which is very typical of, of a Chateau Neuf de Pop. has a little Carignan in it, um, which usually you can't do in Chateau Neuf de Pop. You can do it in Cote de Rhone, but this is California, so you can do what you want. And then I actually put a little bit of a, uh, what's considered a California Rhone in it to give it its, cal it's, it's kind of its, its home. I put a little Petite Syrah into it too, just a tiny percent, but that kind of then makes it not a Chateau Neuf, but a California kind of version. You can't be Chateau Neuf unless you're in Chateau Neuf. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Well, and if, if it tastes like this, then I'm, I'm on board. Uh, we talked a little bit about the wine we're drinking now, but let's talk a little bit about, uh, in the vineyards you have and, and what's different and or unique about them. And, and I guess give it a little plug for yourself. <laughs> okay. As I said, I specialize in the, in the Rhone varietals. So on property, we grow uh, Grenache, Syrah, Mouvedre, and Petite Syrah. We also source some local Carignan and, and, and Cinso down, down here. I like to think what I do, I mean, we, we regularly get um, 90 plus point scores in the wine enthusiast for all the wines that come from our, from our estate vineyard. And I believe that's because of the way I farm it. I'm, I'm, I, I call myself a vigneron and not the winemaker. I actually help in making the wine. I, I have a consulting winemaker that I hired when we first started since I'm not professionally trained and you only get one chance to come out of the gate and make a good first impression. And I wanted to make sure we didn't screw up. And so I met this guy, we hit it off. I hired him thinking it would be just a couple years and then I would, and now we've done 15 harvests together and it just keeps getting better and better. So he kind of oversees our day-to-day winemaking, all the blending, all the, the, what you taste in our wines, that's all my palate. And then I do most of the growing. What I like to say is what makes me different or, or more unique than, than a lot of them, at least the growers in our area and, and, and a lot in the world is I like to take a more, what I call a holistic farming or holistic approach. And I don't think about, oh, what am I going to do today? I'm going to throw some nitrogen on just because I got to get the vine up today. I'm going to think, no, I want this vine to be producing grapefruit over a long period of time. So what am I going to do 
that not just today, but for the next 20 years, and how is it gonna impact? How am I gonna make my soil better? And not worry about just having an instant gratification of throwing some nitrogen on it today. With that, lots of people talk about terroir. And oh, this, it's all about the terroir. Well, okay, if it is, then it's about the soil and it's about the vineyard and it's about what's going on there. And the more inputs you put in, it's not about that. I mean, if you're throwing chemical fertilizers on it and you're throwing chemical insecticides on it and you're doing all of that and you're manipulating everything, it's not about the terroir. And so the more I've been doing this, the more I'm trying to figure out how to express our vineyard. And so I put almost no nitrogen on through either compost or fertilizers, I actually grow my nitrogen now. And that's, that's someone fairly new that I've learned over the last few years, but I was at a seminar and a guy said, well, I don't pay for nitrogen. I pull it out of the air. Well, how do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> and so he puts down cover crops and they bring it in. And so now that's natural. That's coming from there. It's the same thing with getting your soils balanced. If they're out of balance, no matter what you throw on it, it's not going to be able to pick it up because certain minerals block other minerals if, if they're out of balance. And so over time, we're, we're working on, on doing that. And so I kind of feel what makes us sort of unique and my wines unique for our area is the way we grow it and how I think about it and, and not just what this vintage is going to give me, but how, how am I going to just continue to improve so every vintage continues to grow from there. Nice. Yeah. And, and you actually make a really good point in there too, that uh, I hadn't really thought of. And that's that, you know, you can have uh, the, and, and I always struggle with this word, the, the terroir, terroir. terroir I, yeah. yeah, there we go. I'm just not going to say it again. So you can have that T word thing there. <laughs> um, and, and that is worth a lot. But once you've then gone in and added, as you're saying, fertilizers and, and all these other kinds of things to the soil, it, it, you've changed that. So whatever, there might be unique to that region. It's no longer unique if you if, exactly if, right? that, well, that that was the real realization that I came to. You know, when I first learned about it, I always thought, well, yeah, there's lots of things. It's not just the weather. It's just not the dirt, but it's everything you do. It's what you do in the winery. It's you know how much rain you get. To do, but it's it. There's lots of things, and there still is. But if if you're putting in inputs that didn't come from your from your vineyard from your property, then that's not really your property that it's that it's representing in, in the glass of wine right it's it's something else you know what i love about this industry is you always learn and you always evolve i mean you can never know it all no matter how much you think you know it all you don't and and you can learn more and you can change and, and you see it all the time and, and when you go talk to other winemakers in other regions i mean it's sort of the same thing. Anybody that thinks they know everything, well, you don't want to talk to that person. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, and that's what I've loved about being that, you know, I'm willing to admit I am the unsophisticated palate, right? I don't know. I want to learn. And, you know, and I think I thought at some point I would realize that I knew a lot. Uh, and, but it's one of those things that like, where the more you learn, the more you realize, the less you, you know, and how much more there really is to learn. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, I know I like to read a lot and stuff and, when you read a lot of these, you know, different smart people in different walks of life, that's kind of the theme that they all have too, is that, you know, no, I, the more I learn, the more I think I know, the less I actually figure out I really do know. And so I want to learn more. And it's great. I mean, it's, you know, and that, that, that goes to everything, but into to wine and, and growing grapes and drinking wine and everything. I mean, it's, you know, I like to say there's a million wines out there and you should try them all because they all taste different. And how else are you going to learn? 
Yeah. And plus you get a taste of million wines. How can go wrong, right? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So I did also want to talk briefly uh, about, we we may visit this at at more length down the road and uh, potentially even a whole nother episode. We'll kind of see, but you have this uh, supper club and I found that very kind of unique and intriguing. This is an amazing way to kind of connect the, the wine or your wine with people, especially ones that, that, well, I guess local or not local. So uh, it's, I guess it's called the Supper Club. I'm, I'm kind of going on about it. I'm going to shut up and let you talk about it. Well, it, it, is, it, it is really fun. So at Aver Family, we're all about a sense of family and sense of, of community. And we consider all of our wine club members, our family members and, and, and all of that. And we welcome them. Our tasting room is actually at our home. It's outside in, in a little beautiful courtyard. And so we welcome them every time we come and uh, we do lots of stuff for them. We were fortunate enough to meet these gentlemen who have a company called Truffle Shuffle. They're former uh, French laundry chefs, and they've also trained in, in other uh, Michelin star restaurants. And they were just starting up this new truffle company, but the, the whole pandemic hit. And so they were starting to do these online classes and we had gotten to know them a little bit. So we did one with them and it was a huge hit. So we did it in lieu of a, uh, of a wine club release party. We have 250 people on it. And we paired what they made, the menu that we were going to have that night with one of the wines that just came out in that release. So everybody had the wine. It was such a hit. We started talking with them more. And so now we've started this concept called the uh, Saturday Night Supper Club. And we do it once a month. We uh, get together with them either on the phone or through, uh, through Zoom or whatever and come up with a, with a menu and the wine that we're going to pair with it. Then they send you the truffle shuffle people send you a package with all the ingredients you need to make whatever that dish is that night. And then we send you a bottle of wine that's going to pair with it. Of course, there's a charge for it, but you don't have to be a wine club member to do it. And because it's, it's on um, Zoom and you can have thousands of people. So we usually have about a hundred people doing it, mostly couples. It's really fun because when you go onto the whole um, gallery view and you can see everybody, and so you can wave. And since we're co-hosting it, we can talk to you. So we say, hey, Mark, oh, hey, I like the way that uh, that dish is looking really there. Maybe we should add some more salt or something. You know, <laughs> we have fun. You'll see them, they'll all be wearing their Aver family uh, aprons and stuff uh, that we have available and that, that people have picked up over the years. And it just creates this giant sense of community. And it's so fun. It's almost like you're cooking together, even though you're miles apart. Yeah. No, it sounds fun. It sounds exciting. It's a, it's a great, I mean, anything from date night to just have fun with friends night or whatever it may be. Absolutely. Eventually we get around to the topic. <laughs> um, and so today we're talking about Rhone varietals. Tell me a little bit about what is a Rhone varietal and I'm coming into this, uh, you know, Talk talk to me like I'm a five year old or fifth grader. That's about the you know that 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 may be the highest level I'm operating at here, and and kind of try to explain what they are and and, and how to understand them and and all that good stuff and and we'll go from there. Cool, yeah. So you know, in the new world, you know, United States and and Australia and all this stuff, not not Europe. We, we tend to refer to the varietals by the area they come from. So, you know, you have your Bordeaux, so then you think of Cab um, or Burgundies and you think of Pinot Noir and Chard. So, so the Rhone region starts just a little south of the town of Lyon, that's the northern region, and then goes all the way down to just above Provence. So a little south of Avignon, which is enough, was probably the, the second biggest city on the Rhone River. 
the northern Rhone's very steep, very terraced, and then the southern Rhone tends to spread out and it's, it, it's more of a, a basin. Um, the varietals that you find in the Rhone, um, there's a lot of them. There's actually 22 of them. Most of them you've never heard of, so we won't name all of those. The most common ones that people know are Syrah, Grenache, yep. Mouvedre. So those are the three big reds. Some people have heard of Carignan or Cinso, and then after that, you probably haven't heard of most of the other ones. On the white side, probably the most well-known is Viognier, Marsan, Roussan, and Grenache Blanc. And then there's a whole bunch more that you haven't heard of. In the Northern Rhone, the, the only, only red varietal you're allowed to grow, because this is France and they have rules, um, is Syrah. On, in the Northern Rhone, on the white side, um, in one particular area, Condrieu, you can grow Viognier. And you can grow a little Viognier and Cote Roti as long as you blend it in with your Syrah. Um, you're also allowed to grow a little Marsan and Roussan, and then that's it. When you get to the Southern Rhone, you can pretty much grow anything. And there, in the Southern Rhone, they, they tend to be more blends. So of course, the Chateau Neuf de Pop is, is the most famous. You see a lot in the stores, the Cote de Rhone's, um, which are more of their bargain, so to speak, uh, um, blends, because they can come from a bunch of different appellations. And then there's a bunch of other really great appellations that most people haven't heard, heard of, like Gigondas and Vacaras and Caron and stuff like that, that make killer wines at super affordable prices. Hmm. Um, I was in the Rhone in 2017, and we went to uh, this place in Chateau Neuf, guy regularly gets 100, 100 points for, from uh, Robert Parker back in the day when Parker was still uh, doing, doing all the ratings and everything for his wines. If, if that guy was in Bordeaux, you'd be, you'd be spending $500 to $1,000 a bottle. I, bought, I was buying his wines for 45 euros. Wow. It's like 50 bucks. I mean, yeah, And I've heard of the Cote de Rhone's. I've seen that on yeah. a bottle. I had no right. idea what that meant. So that's very interesting. I think I'm going to pay more attention now because yeah. it sounds like that could be a really good quality wine at a, at a really good price. Yeah. Right? And then, and then of course, being French, there's, there's different designations. And so the regular Cote de Rhone means it can come from any area that's been designated as a Cote de Rhone area. Then you get the, the village or village, which means it can only come from specifically named villages, but can still be blended from a bunch of different villages and they're a higher level up. And then you get the named village and that's just below being kind of the high level AOC, which are like the Chateau Neufs and the, and the other ones. And those eventually get, get moved up. But yeah, they're, they're great wines. They're great food wines. All, all the Rhone varietals are, are really great wines to pair with all kinds of different, different foods. They're very approachable. You generally don't have to age them for a long period of time. There's a few appellations where, where you do, but in general, they can be approachable young and medium can age for a long, long, long time, just depending on um, the region and the producer. So how would you, again, for total entry level here, explain like what would I expect in a Rhone versus uh, a Bordeaux or uh, burgundy or anything else or maybe what's different or unique because i think a lot of people are familiar with as you noted a, a cabernet a lot of people are familiar with a, a pinot something like that so what 
and maybe characteristics or differences or, or how would I approach a Roan varietal versus one of those? Yeah. So like uh, on the white side, you're gonna get uh, you're gonna get a lot more of the um, stone fruit notes. Um, you're gonna get a lot of floral notes. You're gonna get uh, well, it depends on where it's from. If it's a northern one, you can get a lot of acidity, a lot more than uh, than you might in some of you know some of the other uh, white regions, except for maybe Burgundy. On the red, you're gonna get uh, you're gonna get some. Um, some beautiful, uh, well, both, you get both red and dark fruits. You tend to get lots of blackberry and, and blueberry um, type of notes. Um, if it's like a Carignan, it'll be more red note, but like Carignan, Mouvedre, uh, even Syrah and Grenache, you'll get a lot of uh, meaty and gamey notes. The one thing you get a lot out of uh, Rhone varietals is pepper. So if you like a peppery note on your wine, which I love, um, and especially if you go more towards the northern room, although those tend to be more expensive because it's cooler and so they get smaller yields. It's just super enjoyable. We did a, an episode on Bordeaux varietals and one of those was a Cab Franc. Yep. So, and they have a little bit of a peppery flavor. So it, would it, it kind of a little bit, is that similar? Am I connecting that correctly or am I? A, a little bit, yeah. I mean, so you, you get uh, mostly black pepper, although from some of the northern ones, you can get a little white pepper uh, in, in, on the um, on both the nose and the palate too. Cab, you know, you're going towards cassis and things like that, where you go to the to the Rhone. Like I said, more blackberry and plum, a lot more gamey and meaty um, undertones. Oh, and then uh, what you'll get a lot is you'll get a lot of herbal um, notes. They call it uh, garic. That has to do with what grows there. So it's lavender and rosemary, sage. We call it rock roses. I can't remember what they call they call it there. They have a special name for it. But anyway, and that all grows grows wild there and around the vineyards, and, and then the um, the grapes will pick some of that up, especially in the southern Rhone. Okay, and I have heard that term before, and I had no idea what it meant. I'm going to say it wrong. Garik. Don't ask me how to spell it, but it's Garik. Garik. <laughs> okay, garlic, no, that, but Garik. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, I've heard that, and, and now I'm going to be able to kind of associate that to more of an herbal, particularly, like you said, some of that lavender and rosemary and kind of... Right. It sounds like they tend to mostly be blends. Is that a fair statement? In the Southern Rhone. In the okay. Northern Rhone, they're generally... Well, they're, if they're red, they're only, they're only Syrah, although in Cote Roti, you're allowed to blend in a little bit of, uh, or co-ferment a little bit of Viognier. Some of the whites can be a blend of Marsan and Roussan. But down in the Southern Rhone, they tend to most be blends. Although you do see, like I said, in Chateau Neuf de Pop, in some of the areas, you'll see 100% um, Grenache. And then occasionally you'll see a few of the others. But <laughs> when, we, I, when I was there, I was talking to a, a winemaker in Tavelle, and he said, well, you know, we are French, and we have to have rules about everything. And then, of course, we have to have exceptions to every rule. And then, of course, <laughs> we have to have exceptions to every exception. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll be in a region, and it'll say, okay, well, it has to have a minimum amount of this and a maximum amount of that, and you can, but you're allowed to put this in, but not that. And, and so, so, like I said, in the Southern Rome, they tend to be, uh, be more blends. And also because of that, because of the heat, then it's hotter in the Southern Rhone. It's a, it's a Mediterranean cli climate versus a continental climate, which is you've been to like Paris or something like that where it's much cooler. And, and that's where the Northern Rhone is. 
and it's the same thing kind of thing here that I like to do with, we have, we have some very warm temperatures here. So you get really ripe fruit, but by blending them, then you can kind of play off of what different things are, are highlighting. And, and maybe in some cases, what maybe they're not highlighting anymore that they might've highlighted if it was a cooler temperature region, but now you can fill that back in with, with something else, you know, and that's why the Grenocerum Vedra, the GSM as, as you, they're often called now, which is an Australian term, they play so well together and they highlight each other and what one grape might be lacking, the other fills in, but also might help support what's really being highlighted in a, in a Grenache and maybe the beautiful floral notes, but then they're backing it up with a little substance that the Syrah is giving it. Nice. So, so you mentioned this a little bit, and we've talked a little bit about the terroir. I think I faked my way through that word. You're in Santa Clara Valley, I think Gilroy. We're actually right in between Morgan Hill and Gilroy on the west side, right at the kind of the base of the Santa Cruz Mountains. Okay. Oh, that's a great location. Got it. Is that similar to the region there? Or because, or, I mean, obviously, if you're growing your own varietals, you need yeah. some well, kind so of similarity. A little bit. So we get a wind every afternoon, not, not quite the mistrals that they get through the Rhone Valley, which cools them off. And since we're next to the ocean, we're right on the other side of Santa Cruz Mountain. So we get that every night and that cools us off. But the Rhone varietals like heat, just like the Bordeaux varietals and many of the Italian and Spanish varietals versus like the Burgundies, which you know, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay like it a little cooler, and but they love they love the heat. You know, some of the first Rhone varietals, believe it or not, were planted here in the Santa Clara Valley. So it's been documented the first Mouvedre ever planted was planted here. They believe the first Carignan, although they don't have documentation on it, and then Petit Syrah, which is you know considered a California Rhone, but actually came from the the Southern Rhone, which is where it was um, created by Dr. Garif. And the first plantings, documented plantings of it here were actually in uh, the northern part of the Santa Clara County, southern part of Alameda County where they meet um, in a big vineyard back in the 1800s, late 1800s. So we have a long history of, of the Rome varietals uh, growing here and obviously doing well. So we knew going in, I knew going in when we brought our property that, that the Rhones did really well here and that's why, because um, it wasn't a it wasn't a Rhone uh, vineyard when I bought it. It was actually a cab vineyard that we either through grafting or replanting changed it all over um, over a four year period to the Rhone varietals. I like that. So you knew you liked the Rhones because you'd come across those, you'd enjoyed them, you you know planted your first uh, little acre there, had had a lot of fun and experiment and growing, and then you knew that you wanted to grow Rhone varietals. You found the right area, you got in there, and you made it happen. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was a long process, but uh, it was it was pretty cool. And when we found the property, I saw an ad for it, and so it had just come on the market that day. And we came down here thinking, oh, I don't know, Gilroy. We weren't living in Gilroy, thinking, ah, oh, I don't know, Gilroy. And you know, people think of garlic and da da da. Stayed on the property for four hours, and at the end of the four hours, we made an offer and said, this is it. This is the property we've been looking for for all these years. Nice. Got to love when it works out like that. Another thing I wanted to hit on that I think is, is unique, it was, you mentioned it as one of the, the grapes that somebody may have heard of or probably heard of, but to me it was brand new and that's a Grenache Blanc. Grenache I know, um, and actually I want to talk a little bit about Grenache in general and in a second here because you can't talk apparently about Rhone varietals with not talking about Grenache, but tell me a little bit about the Blanc. Is it unusual that, it, that I've not heard of it? Am I that unsophisticated or? <laughs> no, no you're not. In the Southern Rhone, it's grown quite a bit, and it's in a lot of blends, and 
in California, it's not that well known of a grape. So we're working on trying to change that. In the summer, it's a beautiful sipper. It's got some nice acidity. It's got some really nice uh, floral notes, honeysuckle and orange blossom. You can get a little bit of stone fruit off it. You'll definitely get a little bit of green apple and maybe pear. It's just a lovely, lovely varietal. But it's, you know, so most people know Grenache and it's really called Grenache Noir. That means red, right? Or dark. And then there's Grenache Blanc, which means white. So they're, they're in the same family, but they're actually two different grapes. One's white, one's red. And believe it or not, Grenache actually has a, has a, a third cousin called Grenache Gris. But uh, it's one of the few varietals that actually has three different grapes in the family, you know, as opposed to just one or, or two. Yeah. Well, and I don't feel so bad for someone who's kind of really seems like devoted a big portion of your life to the Rhone varietals uh, that, that you're used to haven't tasted them all and aren't familiar with all of the grapes. That makes me feel a bit better. I think a couple of the ones that I'm most familiar with, and we'll just hit them high level and then kind of go from there. So Grenache itself. Now, if I am, what little I know about this is predominantly or used to be predominantly a blending grape that people just kind of threw in to blend with stuff, but it really seems like so many more people are, are serving it on its own or making it the predominant part of a blend. Talk a little bit about the Grenache grape and why it's on or been or had that journey. Yeah, so it's a, it's a great grape. It's got beautiful floral notes to it, aromas, violet. You're right. Most of the Rhone varietals are, are, are considered blenders because that's what, what, other than Syrah standing on its own in the Northern Rhone, in the Southern Rhone, most of them were blended together here in the United States. That's what, I mean, everybody wants a Cab or a Pinot or a Merlot. So you would do your red blends and you just blend them all together. And, and it's a great grape to be kind of the, the center of, of a blend if you're going to do a blend doesn't always have as much tannins and it can though. Um, I've had some, some, some Grenaches from some other growers uh, that, that have had huge tannic backbones to them. But that's why you, you end up blending in some Syrah or something like that to give that to it. It's a beautiful standalone uh, grape. We, may, we make a couple different Grenaches here uh, at Aver family that are just just beautiful to sip and enjoy with lamb or or some good hearty meat let's go it's voignier oh here you go so it's it's called voignier think of the uh the village people in ymca so you kind of do the same thing so you put your arms up and you make a v and you make an o and then you go yay (laughs) that's not quite how you say it but voignier so funny little side story on that so long long ago when i was getting into wines and collecting and trying to learn everything. I read about this grape, Viognier, except for I didn't know how to pronounce it because nobody had told me about it. I just saw it in, in uh, like Wine Spectator magazine or something. So I pronounced, I kind of tried to sound it out and I called it Vivener. <laughs> okay, yep, that, I <laughs> so, would probably too. <laughs> so I went to, we went to one, a favorite restaurant that when we used to live in Marin that we went to regularly and they were doing, they, ha- they were featuring Viognier for the month and it was all from France. It was a long time ago, and so Viognier wasn't wasn't really known in California very much. And they had a whole menu around it and stuff. And so I said, "Well, I want some of this Viognier." And so, of course, the waiter Viognier. So the next time he comes back, I said, "Yeah, I want another glass of Viognier." So Viognier. Well, by my fourth glass, I was fluent in French. <laughs> I was calling it Viognier and everything. Now, of course, the next morning it was back to Wiener, but... <laughs> well, I, I, and I got to kind of question that. I mean, was the pronunciation better because you were 
a little more intoxicated and thought it was better or was it better because it actually got better? <laughs> That's probably why I thought I was fluent. <laughs> right? I'm not very fluent in French at all. I'm really there good at go. butchering it. <laughs> there you um, go. Yeah, but since then, Viognier is actually my favorite white grape. It is just, I just love it. Oh, gosh, man. I could just, I drink it all the time. It's, uh, it's, it, it's sort of the opposite of Chardonnay. And so I love Chardonnay because I actually make some Chardonnays and uh, I mean, I love all grapes, but it's kind of the opposite. You don't, you don't really use uh, oak on it. So it doesn't have any oak, doesn't tend to sit in the barrels for very long compared to a shard, what, how long a shard can. So shard typically has some of that oak notes, the vanillin and the butterscotch. And then of course you got your green apples and your pears and, 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 and everything that goes with that. So Viognier is about stone fruit and citrus notes, maybe even a little bit of tropical note. And if, if you like seafood, like crab or lobster, it goes perfect with that. In fact, we do a big crab feed every year for, for our wine club when the Viognier comes out. You might notice that there's a lot of eating and drinking going on at Aver family. <laughs> and I think we're all okay with that. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're definitely into, into, into enjoying a lot of food and a lot of great wine. Viognier can also go with some of your, you know, your, your more spicy stuff. So you could try a little Thai food or a little Indian or, or something that has, has a little bit of a spice and kick to it. And, and it can handle it really, really nice. So like I said, it's my favorite white, white grape. Awesome. Is there another grape we should uh, talk about or mention? I know you said there's several, but it, when we've kind of covered, I think a few of them. Well, uh, is there... Yeah, so, so let me talk about probably the grape that we're most known for, which is, uh, like I had said earlier, was, is a California Rhone. It's called Petit Syrah, although its real name is Darif, um, and it was invented by Dr. Darif um, in the Southern Rhone after uh, the phylloxera epidemic wiped out 90-some-odd percent of all the grapes in France. So he was going to create this, this wonder grape. This, it was going to be prolific, so there's going to be big yields. It was going to be mildew resistant. It was going to be rot resistant. And it was going to be the grape that saved France. We got one out of three. It's very prolific if you let it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it's a great grape. So it never really caught on in, in France, but it caught on big time in the United States, especially in California. And it's actually the go-to grape for a lot of winemakers when they're having a little problem with that cab. It's not dark enough. It doesn't have enough tannin structure. needs a little something. They'll blend in a little Petit Syrah and that'll fix it right up. Petit Syrah, for some reason, does really, really well in, in our area. And it's just an amazing grape. We, have, we make two different Petit Syrahs, family album, and then our, uh, our, our flagship wine, which is, uh, which is a wine called Blessings. Um, and that regularly gets high scores for, um, for our Aver family vineyards. And what I love about it, it's, it's a big wine. It's great with ribs and steaks and all that. Although my wife started making a, a savory blueberry tart that we pair with it. And so blueberries is the primary descriptor for Petit Syrah, and you get a nice ripe Petit Syrah, it almost makes you think of um, blueberry pie. And you get some nice black berry notes and some dark fruit notes. It loves oak, so you can give it a lot of oak. So our, our blessings, actually, I, it gets 100% new oak for 30 months, which is a long time. Yeah. Um, and, and then because it's such a big wine, I lay it down in the bottle for another year and a half before I release it. You can age it for a long time. In fact, I just uh, was lucky enough a wine club member shared uh, one of my 2006s 
with me, which was the first year we ever made it. It was still drinking beautiful and probably still had another five to 10 years on it. It was, it was gorgeous. So when we first bought our property, it had a tiny, it had all this cab and this tiny little block of Petite Syrah in it. And I wanted nothing to do with the Petite Syrah because it wasn't a true Roan. And I was, I was a true Roan head. <laughs> but I was going to throw it in with a Syrah and just call it Syrah. I mean, who would know, right? It was just a yeah, tiny right? bit. And, uh, <laughs> but fortunately for me, the vines were pretty young and they actually ended up ripening. It was a very hot year, 2006 vintage. It ripened ahead of the Syrah, which never happens. So I picked it and we made wine out of it. Still my intention to blend it back into the Syrah. Well, so I, I told you I have this uh, consulting winemaker and it was one of our, it was our early years and we were tasting through the barrels. And when we got to the Petite Syrah, he said, well, what do you think? I said, oh yeah, this is going to make a great Syrah. He's like, no, I think you got to make a Petite Syrah. I said, oh no, I'm not going to do that. I don't think you should blend it. I'm not going to help you blend it. You need to make a, a <laughs> Petite Syrah. It'll, 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 you'll sell it like just like hotcakes and, and you'll, you'll get $50 for it. Yeah, you're crazy. So I ended up taking back a sample to some friends that were big time collectors. And uh, they're both like, wow, this is really good. Yeah, I'll buy a case of this. And I said, well, I'm gonna charge 50 bucks. And one of them said, I'll take two. So oh. <laughs> maybe I should make Petite Syrah. And it's actually now become the, the, the grape we're most famous for is, uh, is Petite Syrah. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. And I am sold. I've got a, uh, a few bottles. Uh, sitting right over here of the Aver uh, family vineyards and I will be looking forward to it. It'll be my first uh, Grenache, Grenache Blanc. Um, my first, if I can say it, Vonier. Vionier. Vionier. Uh, and I'm that again, the way you're describing these, I am so looking forward to them. If people also want to make sure they're trying these wines and, and experiencing this and or want to check out that supper club, how can they get in touch with you? Oh, very easy. Or you can find us on our website, averfamilyvineyards.com. So all of our wines are there and the Supper Club. We, of course, um, ship, but we don't ship everywhere. We, but we ship to about 10 or 12 states, all, all the major ones. If you live in a state that we can't ship the wine for the Supper Club, you can still sign up for it. You just won't get the wine and you will get a price, a price break on, on that because you didn't get the wine. And then, but Truffle Shuffle, who sends out the food, can, can ship it everywhere. And uh, if you want to come visit us, like I said, we're in the southern Santa Clara Valley near the town of Gilroy and Morgan Hill. And we're open on the weekends, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. I'm pretty much in the tasting room uh, every time we're open, as is my wife. So you can come chat us up. And if you want to talk about wine, I'll talk your ear off. Outstanding. Love it. <laughs> Well, for more information about The Unsophisticated Palette, you can visit us at theunsophisticatedpalette.com. And until next time, drink responsibly. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, and I'm going to butcher the pronouns pronunciation. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of pronunciation to start with. Um, 